Hi, people. Okay. Well, do, are those lights usually on? I I turn those on. I think they're not usually on. They're like ten thousand degrees or so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, uh, Corbin, you need to stay back there, buddy. I knew that tonight was going to be a little down, and um, and it was, it was honestly one of those weeks that I was struggling a little bit. I think a general case of fatigue and sermon block were working against me. Um, and I decided to do something that I'll probably have to do from time to time throughout our journey together. And that is take a break from John every now and then. Um, I'm sure you all know this, but and you're probably comfortable with it, but I guess for my sake I want to say something, go over something real quick as an intro. It's something that I think that a lot of members of Reformed churches are a little bit confused about. And again, I'm not, not suggesting that anybody here is. I don't know. Um, but it's something I, I hear a lot from, from other people from other members at other churches that expository preaching does not refer specifically to the practice of taking books of the Bible and going section by section through each book. That's actually called serial exposition. That's um, To do expository preaching, you don't have to do that. Now, I think that's a great idea. I think that's the ideal. I think that's the norm. should be the pattern. But um, that's actually confusing a subset or a way of doing expository preaching with expository preaching. Does that make sense? <clears throat> I wholeheartedly believe, wholeheartedly believe that expository preaching should be the main diet of a healthy church, but there are occasions where a pastor feels the need to address a topic with his congregation that you just can't rightly do from one passage. And the example I always think about is abortion or those sort of like uh, moral uh, maybe homosexuality or something like that. You, if you if you need to get a biblical worldview, bye Bob. <laughs> if you need to get a biblical worldview of uh, of abortion, you can't do that from one passage, right? So you need to you, you need to absorb all of the pa- all the scripture says about abortion. That's a true topical sermon. The difference between expository sermons and topical sermons is not that expository sermons go verse by verse where topical sermons jump all around. That's not the difference. Um, As a matter of fact, I've heard preachers preach topically as they went verse by verse. I think of some preachers on the radio. They They go section by section, but their sermons are actually topical sermons. And so let's just be clear what makes an expository sermon expository and a topical sermon topical. It's not how the it's not how the preacher decides which passage to preach on. It's how the pastor preaches the passage he's already decided to preach on. Right? <laughs> Was that confusing? <laughs> In a topical sermon, we could we could turn to Psalm one thirty nine and read about how God created life. And if we were to preach that topically, we would say, Oh, Psalm one thirty nine is about life. Well, let's look at what the Bible says about life. Well, here it says this, and here it says that, and there it says that. We we use Psalm 139 as sort of a springboard into the subject of life. That's a topical sermon. Even if last week you preached Psalm 138, week before that, Psalm 137, and next week, Psalm 140, you're going Psalm by Psalm, that's still a topical sermon, okay? Because an expository sermon would take Psalm 139, would study it and discern what the main point of the text is, and then the main point of the text will become the main point of the sermon. And the, the structure and argument of the 
sermon would take the structure and argument of the text. That's what expository preaching is. It, 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 as much as possible, it tries to let the preacher get out of the way and argue and speak the text itself. So, does that, does that make sense? Again, you pro- I mean, probably already there. Um, but it, it means to let a, a single passage speak and argue for itself. It means the, the argument and structure of the text are the argument and structure for the sermon. So the really interesting thing is that an expository sermon can be topically occasioned. Okay, Take Pastor Dennis' sermon uh, past Christmas. He decided, well, it's Christmas, he wants to preach on Christmas, so I think it was Luke 1. Does that sound right? Sure. If you remember. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was Luke 1 where the angel came to, to Mary and told her um, the good news. That was a topically chosen text that he preached expositorily because he let the text, the argument and the structure of the text be the argument and structure of a sermon. All right? A topically chosen text Presuppositorily, and, and that's a big difference. So um, the only reason I say, if you go to other places or listen to the radio or whatever, be a little discerning. Some people that might not go verse by verse could still preach expositorily, and maybe you think wisdom would suggest they should go verse by verse. That's fine. Um, but on the other hand, some people who preach book by some people who preach topical say they preach expositorily might actually be preaching topical sermons. So. The reason I said that is because tonight I have a, a topically occasioned, I trust, expository sermon from Mark chapter 1. <laughs> Even though it's not the next section of John, it's still hopefully going to be an expository sermon. That was a long explanation. <laughs> Mark chapter 1, verse 16. This evening we're going to think about two contrasting understandings of Christianity and the Christian life. Okay, So let, let's, as you're looking at Mark 1, give me your attention here. I want to think about the difference between joining a club and becoming an electrician. Okay, Anybody part of a club? Remember a club? Wow. Wow. Good. The last club that I joined that I can remember, it was an unofficial club. Um, it was several summers ago. I drove to Tifton, and I came home a member of this club. Okay, um, I was riding my brand-new Kawasaki Ninja motorcycle. Brand-new to me. It, wasn't, it was a used bike. But I bought a Kawasaki EX500 Ninja. And, yes, I'm well aware of the oddity of a, a rural Southern Baptist church pastor riding a ninja. So, and I had several parishioners point that out to me, but... Um, I knew I was in a club when I bought that because I'm driving at home. I passed somebody and something strange happened. Somebody I didn't know, never seen before. You know what happened? They stuck their hand out like this and waved at me. You ever seen that? If you've never noticed that, every time two motorcycles pass, they do that. Almost the only time they don't. In fact, if if you pass on a motorcycle and, you, and they don't wave back, it's like. You've just been snuffed. I mean, it's, it's offensive. But I didn't know at the time until I get my motorcycle. Just by being on a motorcycle, I'm now part of an unofficial motorcyclist club. It is a club, trust me. Now, in the, way, the, the sign of the club is to wave at each other. You've got to do it really cool. Harley drivers do it differently. But Anyway, think how different joining a club like that is from becoming a professional electrician. Right, if you're familiar, it's really, really different. I bought a motorcycle, put on a helmet, I'm part of the club. 
All I have to do to stay in it is continue riding and keep waving. But to become an electrician, first you go to school, right? Then you become an apprentice. And then you follow somebody around, you clean up their scrap wire, and you do the dirty work, and you watch, and you hold the flashlight, and you learn a little bit more, you be the gopher. And eventually you persist long enough, and then eventually you're the one telling the, the apprentice, the newest apprentice, what to do and showing him the reps. So being, a, uh, being an electrician is a dedicated process, vastly different from just joining a club. Unfortunately, because God's grace is so free and instantaneous, because it's so free, so many multitudes of Christians think of being a Christian like being a member of a club. Whereas in reality, it's much less like joining a club and much more like becoming an apprentice, a dedicated lifelong apprentice. So let's read Mark 1, starting in verse 14 together. Let's stand and prepare our hearts for God's Word. Mark 1:14. Now, after John, John the Baptist, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Verse 16. And passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Our Father God, we pray that you would come and be with us tonight. We pray your blessings on the reading of your word, on the preaching of your word, on the hearing of your word, and the applying of your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Okay, now pretend for a moment that we hadn't just read 16 and following. We just read verses 14 and 15. We just heard Jesus say the most astonishing thing. And that's that He is the one who's bringing this long-awaited kingdom of God. I mean, we've been waiting and waiting for the kingdom of God. And Jesus just says, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. It's come. And He's pointing to Himself. It's here. It's in me. So what's he going to do now? We've been waiting for hundreds of years for this restoration of the kingdom. What's he going to do? Something spectacular for sure. We would expect him to advance God's kingdom in the most dramatic and powerful ways. You know, like rain down, he- rain down thunderbolts of lightning from heaven. Smite the unregenerate evildoers. Judge the Romans. Throw them out of Israel. Restore Israel to the, 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 the mother the, 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 the motherland, you know. The kingdom of God is here. Awesome. Go be king, Jesus, and make everything right. We've been waiting for this forever. And he could have done all that. But strangely, strangely, when, uh, when the kingdom of God comes, instead of doing that, instead of raining down and lighting from heaven, he calls a few people to follow him. And that's it. It's, it's very anticlimactic. He doesn't even call spectacular people to follow him. You know, the nobles and the kings and the educated. He calls a few fishermen to follow him. Probably not up-and-coming presidents. They probably weren't running for president. Just regular working-class folks. They weren't dirt poor like some people have pitched it. They were, they were middle-class folks, but, but they were no names, you know. And strangely, when Jesus called them, 
the kingdom of God is somehow advancing. That's essential to grasp. Jesus walking up to a man on a boat saying, follow me, that right there, the kingdom of God just went farther. The kingdom of God just came and advanced. Okay? So in them, in this, in the calling of these four men, we see God's plan and purpose for eternity past and eternity future coming into fruition. Actually unfolding right there. Just in Jesus saying, come and follow me. It's pretty spectacular. And so here's what we learn from that. Jesus is going to advance and establish God's kingdom by calling unspectacular men and women to become his disciples. Jesus is going to advance and establish God's kingdom by calling unspectacular men and women to become his disciples. So advancing the kingdom means becoming disciples. You see that? It it, it does not mean joining Club Jesus. It's becoming disciples of Jesus. It's interesting, Jesus did not say, Hey, Simon, Andrew, would you come on shore for a few minutes? i got a question for you. Will you accept me as king? Okay, good. Now get back out in your boats and keep going about your life. Right? No. Follow me. Become my disciples. Apprentice with me. So, so entering into the kingdom of God looks like a man laying down his tools, saying goodbye to his profession leaving his dad and and their workers and getting behind Jesus and committing himself to go where Jesus goes, to do what Jesus does, to to serve where Jesus would serve. It looks like following him, not just carrying a card that says, I belong to Club Jesus. Life as a Christian means being a disciple of Christ. So that's sort of the intro to this text. And what we're going to do tonight is um, this, this text gives us four ways, four massive ways that the discipleship kind of Christianity is massively different from the club version. So, four ways in this text that that the biblical discipleship model is different from the club model of being a Christian. Number one, Christianity as discipleship means that Jesus initiates and commands our following Him. It doesn't happen in a club. In discipleship, Jesus starts... And Jesus commands our following of him. So the text says Jesus is, quote, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee two times. He's just walking along, and he walks up to the shoreline. Just picture it in your brain. The water's coming up there. He's standing on a rocky shore. And he yelled out. I mean, he must have yelled because they wouldn't have been right there on the shore. He calls these men by name, which presumably he's never met before. Calls them by name and says, Men... Follow me. And the text says, immediately they do. It's not like he was engaged in conversation with them. It's not like they were like, how's the fishing today? Oh, they're biting on this. You know, oh, can you come follow me? It was just this almost awkward, he's walking along, stops, follow me! And here they come. I mean, it's really awkward. I look at verse 17. Follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. There's actually no verb in the Greek, in the original Greek. Um, It says, here, behind me. That's what it says. Here, behind me. And we interpret that, follow me, and I follow me. It says, here, behind me. You can almost see Jesus pointing a finger right here, as he called them, right? Like, it's very literal for them. For us, it's maybe a little bit less literal in terms of what it means to follow Jesus today. But, but Jesus was actually saying, 
get out of the boat and get here and stay there, right? Like when we call our children sometimes, come over here right now. In other words, as I lead, as I walk, you're right behind me. As I eat, you're right behind me. As I work, you're right behind me. Become my apprentice. Become my disciple. And I told you about the Greek because I want you to hear the force of it. He, he didn't say, hey, Pete, you got a second? I, I want to talk to you. He says, he says this with, with a glorious force, with a commanding authority. He says this like a, a general you know, talking to a, a foot soldier. Here, now. And, and both Matthew and Mark, when they tell this same story, they both explicitly say that they immediately, immediately obeyed. Immediately, It's like they felt the force and authority in Jesus saying, get here right now. So our following Jesus, Peter, Andrew, Simon, I'm sorry, James, John, they're following Jesus. It, all of us, it was completely initiated by him. They're fishing. They're not saying, hey, can we follow? They're out fishing, working. Jesus says, you guys, come here. And they obeyed. He called with such authority. He, he made his calling so compelling they literally left their nets right there. In club Christianity, you lose all of that. You lose all of that. The club version says, you know, following Jesus makes sense for me right now. It, 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 it makes sense. It suits me. It's good for me. You know, it's just like, um, why do people join the Masons? Or why do they join the... What's the flower gardening thing? Master Gardener? Sounds like fun right now. I've got time on my schedule. My friends go there. They make a reason calculated. That would work. That sounds good. That's what club Christianity says. Yeah, that would be good. I should be a Christian. But, but, but true Christianity that has as its model discipleship understands that our teacher came to us and gave us a powerful binding command. Ryan Heider, you follow me. And I simply obeyed because of the raw authority of Jesus Christ. And this, guys, this makes for such a firm foundation. I think there's a reason that with club Christianity goes a certain shallowness that we've all experienced, right? Because if this, if this is our model, this is our understanding of Scripture and history, then my following Jesus is not based upon an easy decision I made one day to join his club. It's based upon the fact that one day he compelled and commanded my obedience and I'm following today because the king of kings told me to follow him. That's a lot different, especially when I get cancer. He's not asking for me to come. He's not asking for you to come. He's not saying if it fits into your schedule today, guys, I'd like for you to be here behind me. He's saying that the king of the universe demands that we repent and submit to him. So, that, doesn't that just sound, when you put it like that, doesn't that sound like an entirely different breed of Christianity? But indeed it is. Number two. Number two, Christianity as discipleship means it's not a matter of being part of the club. It's a matter of having a new disciple-slash-discipler relationship, or disciple whatever the suffix should be there. It's, it's a matter of having a new relationship with Jesus. If you think about this, this is really awesome. <laughs> How many things could you think of? That Jesus could have commanded these four guys to do a million things to enter in the kingdom of God. Right? Here, here's the kingdom. It's in Jesus. He's standing at the, at the shoreline. He's getting ready to call them in. He could have had them do a million things. He could have said, 
you know, jump up and down and touch your toes, or go buy me a Subway sandwich, or, I mean, he could have said, wear red hats for the rest of your life. He could have said, fill out this car. Pray this prayer after me. But instead, he called them into a new relationship with himself, where he's the leader and they're the devoted followers. I think that's awesome. It's just like an apprentice, isn't it? It, it reminds me of my grandpa. My grandpa was this really, really hands-on guy. He was a chief mechanic for uh, two power plants in Illinois. He was, he was Mr. Fixer to my family. And he had this deep desire to pass everything he knew on to me. Um, and what he didn't do was give me a book and say, go read this book, which I would have preferred, but he wouldn't have. He, always, he was always skeptical of book knowledge. Um, but he was, he was not the, here's a book, go read about it. He was a, here boy, hold the flashlight while I work on this socket kind of guy. You know, go get me a half-inch deep well socket kind of guy. Hands on. Because he thought, rightly, I think, that if I would spend enough time looking over his shoulder, holding the flashlight, nope, don't get it in my eyes, you know, getting the socket wrench, getting the pliers, getting the wrenches, that eventually I would absorb those things. He wanted me to be his little puppy dog and just follow him back and forth and watch him. And I did learn a ton from him. And that's the same quality of discipleship picture we get from Jesus that he's called us to enter into. It's a, it's a watch me, live with me, eat with me, help me, all the while learning from me kind of disciple relationship. 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 The disciples are going to be with Jesus. Peter is going to be with Jesus from this moment on until he leaves him, or unless Jesus sends him out temporarily. But think, I mean... If he would have said, if he would have given them anything else to do, just think about the difference in what they actually did. From this moment on, he's there when Jesus goes to sleep. And you know, what could you, you ever go on a retreat with somebody, and you get back and you feel like you know them at a just completely different level, because you, you shared a room with them, you saw what they looked like when they woke up, and they're smelly, and you went out to dinner, you know, you just, you just get to know your friends at a completely different level when you actually spend that kind of time with them, Right? Well, they're, I mean, three years. They're with him. They're there when Jesus has indigestion because he ate too much fish or whatever. I mean, they're, they're there uh, when, when he laughs. They're there when he debates, when he argues, when he reasons, when he prays. They're just, they get to experience life right behind Jesus. And, and here's the crazy thing. Even after Jesus leaves the earth and ascends to heaven, he explicitly says that relationship is going to continue. So just before Jesus is in heaven, he actually gives us the, the permanent mission of the church. You know it very well. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and... What's the church up to now? Go and get some decisions. Go and join our club. Go and make disciples, right? Go and replicate yourselves, he gives to the disciples. That's a sweet passage because it tells us that even after Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father... They still, and we still, are able to have that same disciple-discipler relationship with him. We're still able to be his followers. We're still able, even though he's not bodily present with us, we're still able to become his disciples. And so here's a really simple mission of the church. Be disciples, make disciples, for the glory of God. Be disciples, make disciples, for the glory of God. I think that just about covers it. (laughs) That's the mission of the church. And the club version seems so worthless compared to being a personal disciple of King Jesus. It seems worthless compared to that. I mean, we devote our lives to learning from him, from him, right? To observing him in his word, to 
communing with him in prayer. Uh, that's awesome. Jesus isn't, the, isn't the, the giver of a list of rules that we live by, you know, rules of our club. He's not our pass into heaven. We see Jesus as the one today who continues to disciple us individually and corporately. Our, our lives literally revolve around him. So, so is that how you're thinking about Christianity and your faith today? Do you think about it as a club that has rules that we're supposed to abide by and be a good member? Or, or do you think about it as, as being a personal follower, disciple of Jesus Christ? Are we content with being a club member or are we striving every day to, to continually learn from Him and be instructed by Him and, and watch Him? Number three. This is, number three is going to answer the question, why, to what end, does Jesus command us to spend our lives following Him? What's His goal in Chris following Jesus? What's, his, what's He accomplishing with that? Number three, Christianity as discipleship means our goal is conformity to Jesus. Here's the thing about club Christianity, club Jesus. It has no goal. There's no goal. Once you're in, you're in. You're a Christian, you're in. You got it. You got the, got the name tag and the sticker and the secret handshake. And brothers and sisters, guys, seriously, this mentality has plagued the American church. Plagued it. Once you're in, you're in. Do you have any idea, maybe you do, how bloated the list of members for Southern Baptist Convention is right now? It, it is technically on paper the biggest evangelical denomination in the United States. But those numbers are based on ridiculous membership lists with meaningless names on them. Um, the first Baptist church I pastored had over 200 people listed as members and reported as members, so the SBC counts them as members of the denomination. Over 200, guess what our average attendance was? Around 40, 45. Keep in mind as I go through this that a healthy church should always have more people in the seats on Sunday than they have members. Right? Not, I mean, it should always have more. Because members have all committed. have said, I'm in. I'm a Christian. I'm in. I'm committed. I'm going to be here all the time. And then in addition to that group, take out a few that are sick, in addition to that, you're going to have people that you're discipling and trying to bring into that community, right? So a healthy church should always have more warm bodies than members. So we had 200 members, 40, 45 people. The second Baptist church I pastored had around 100 listed members with about 20 to 25 warming the pews. Fold down seats, actually. And the last Baptist church, Hickory Hill, had well over 200 with an average attendance of 70 or so. So, the, that which was the best one, that was about 40%. Uh, we had people listed as members that we had no address, no phone number, no next of kin, no contact information whatsoever. Nobody even knew some of these folks. I remember I decided at one point I was really annoyed by this list. I decided I was going to just start, go through and find these people and visit them and ask them if they want to be a member, if not, to get off the list. The first people I visited... Um, they were, they were very old. They said, oh yeah, we're members of Hickory Hill. We were born, born there and raised there. Come to find out, it was the uncle of one of my chairmen of deacons, or I mean, of the chairman of the deacons, and he hadn't seen his uncle in church since he was a little boy. And the deacon was 70 years old. He hadn't seen his uncle since he was a boy. So this man hadn't been in the church in almost 65 years, and he's a member. And not only did we think he was a member, but he thought he was a member. You've heard the Alcoholics Anonymous 
mantra, you know, once you're an alcoholic, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. That's us. Yeah, when I was seven years old, my neighbor drove me through a revival at a nearby Baptist church. I walked the aisle, joined the club, went to Sunday school for a few years. That was 40 years ago, but hey, I joined the club. Yeah, I'm a Christian brother. Once a member, always a member. But that's more like Club Disney than it is Christianity, isn't it? Jesus didn't say, guys, if you follow me for a year, this isn't the army, you know, give me a year of Sunday school and church, and then you're good. You're in the club. We'll take care of college for you. When Christianity is discipleship, then we understand that the Christian life is a process, a continual process of change. And the goal, there is actually a goal. The goal is actually reflecting the image of our Master. So if you're still on this earth, there's still change for you to strive after. You don't look like Jesus yet, right? If you're still here. Christ chose us and commanded our discipleship. He walked up to Peter and said, Peter, get here and follow me. Because he was planning to take him and take us and change us until we looked like him. Why else would he call us to follow him? He wasn't interested in having 100 people tagging along behind him everywhere he went. That wasn't his goal. His purpose was that we would so apprentice ourselves to him and learn from him and focus on him until we actually began to look and live and love like him. Becoming like him is the whole goal, right? That's what he tells Simon and Andrew. The result of their following him is what? That they will become, I will make you become fishers of men. I make you become fishers of men. So just picture it. These men are out here in a boat all day, every day, trying to haul in fish, get more fish, get more fish. What would you say their life revolved around? Fish. More fish. I need fish. Okay? Jesus says, follow me, and you'll soon be trying to grab and haul in more men. In other words, if you follow me, you'll eventually be making disciples. Okay? So, so why does Jesus think that following Jesus will make fishers of fish into fishers of disciples? Because that's what Jesus did. That's what, that's what Jesus is doing right there, right? As he's saying it, he's making disciples, right? Come follow me. He's creating disciples, and the result of you becoming my disciple is you too will begin creating disciples. It's, you're going to be like Jesus. That's the whole point. So, just to get your attention, I don't. there's no bigger news tonight than this. That God's plan for you is to turn you into an image of Jesus Christ. That, that God wants nothing less from you than Christ-likeness, than Christ-imaging. He's planning on so working in you that after you have followed Jesus throughout your life, at the moment of glory, you will look like Jesus, talk like Jesus, trust like Jesus, obey the Father like Jesus. You will be, spiritually speaking, an image of Christ. Not only is that God's plan for you, but He's already determined that it will take place. It's not a matter of whether or not you, as a born-again disciple, will look like, be transformed into His image. Romans 8.29, a passage you know well. God predestined that you would be conformed to the image of His Son. Here's the image of Christ. He determined beforehand, Romans 8.29 says, that you will be shaped, molded, pressed, prodded, until at the end of time, you are in the image of Christ. That's part of his plan for all of history, for the whole universe, that Jesus would be the chief among many brethren. Chief among many brethren. So God's eternal plan for us is that we would be 
brothers of Jesus. Lesser brothers, but brothers nonetheless. To be like him. And he is accomplishing that very task through our discipleship. That's what discipleship is all about. Taking us into that image of Christ. So, so what I'm suggesting is that your discipleship, when you pursue following Jesus and being his disciple, when you do that, you are bringing into fulfillment God's eternal cosmic redemptive purpose. Which gives lots of meaning to the mundane little things that we do. When you pursue, in the moment, being a disciple of Christ, you're seeing the eternal plan for the universe come to fruition through you and in your life, right at that moment. Number four, finally. Christianity as discipleship means that Christ radically reorients our lives when we become Christians. And we've already kind of said that, but let's see it in the text. Jesus commanded the men, follow me, and immediately what they do? They left their net, they followed him. When Jesus uh, commands John and James, verse 20, immediately he called them and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. <laughs> Which this passage kills me. I chuckled like many times as I read this. I wonder what dad was thinking. What's dad thinking when when he leaves him in the boat, if it was my grandpa, I'd be, what are you doing, boy? Get back over here and pick up your end of the net. They left their tools in the boat. They didn't even help unload the boat. They left their dad sitting there. And as personally, as somebody who's currently absorbed in trying to start a business, I just think about the business aspect of this. This was... these are. It says the hired servants and their dad was in the boat with hired servants, which means... At least for James and John, they are the, the overseers. This is a family business. They're the owners of this business. So, this is serious stuff, right? This is like, Chris, when your dad's around, if he, when he was still around, you know, you just up and walking out on his whole cattle and apartment complex. I mean, something he'd worked hard to build. Dad is not going to be happy about that, right? This is serious. They just walked away from it all. And you see what the disciples instinctively knew. They knew that to do what Jesus was telling them to do, they couldn't stay in the boat. They got that. They couldn't stay with Dad and with the workers. They had to willfully say goodbye to all those things to, to respond to Jesus' command. Additionally, we've already heard Jesus telling them, come with me and I'll make you fishers of men. You were fishers of fish. Now the entire focus and center and purpose and function of your life is going to be radically replaced. And so the point is, when they become his disciples, their lives are completely repositioned and recentered. Here's your life, picture like a hurricane in the eye of the storm. Here's your life revolving around this. Something completely different. It makes me think about, um, well, I've this many times, but I just think about extension cord. Some, actually, something my grandpa was very concerned to teach me about, which I still mess up. But every time I'm like an extension cord or a, a garden hose, the garden hose is the worst. Because usually the garden hose is wet and muddy after you're done using it, right? So you don't want to do the old arm thing. So I'll always try to like stand on it, you know, and wrap it up. And then you're standing over here and pull it and you're trying to get it wrapped up just right. You get three quarters of the way done and it's all fumble jumbled and messed up. Instead of fixing it, the, what's the best thing to do? Just throw it out, 
start over, and this time I'm going to do it. I'm going to hold the end of it and wrap it like this. Right, I'm going to throw it out and rewrap it around my arm this time. That's what Jesus does to these four men's lives. He, he basically shakes them out and rewraps them. And this time, there's a new center. This time, there's something else at the center. Right? Not family, which, not family. I mean, it's great. It's awesome. It's important. But their lives are not wrapped around their family. They left their dad in the boat. Not their jobs, certainly. Not their boats, not their workers, not their money. What? He is now at the center. Something else was at the center of each one of their four lives. Maybe it was all work, maybe it was other things. Women, money, whatever, company. But now the thing that unites them is he is at the center of each one of their lives. His mission, his kingdom, his glory. Their lives are wrapped around him. That's what happens each and every time Jesus calls a disciple. Whatever their lives were all wrapped up in, thrown out and rewrapped, and Christ is now at the center. Everything they were, everything they were into, everything they loved, it, it, it's now been replaced at the core. And, you know, so for some, that will mean, for some people today, that will mean literally like James, John, Peter and Andrew leaving the boat, leaving the work, leaving the leaving the company you tried to build, leaving family members that are not willing for you to be a disciple of Christ. I mean, for some people, this is a very literal leaving everything and following Christ and being rewrapped around Him. And I can't insert that too or not. For for other people, it might mean doing the same activities. But the heart and core of what you were doing and why you were doing it has been uprooted and replaced with Christ, right? Because I, I think we'd all agree it's, it's possible for a fisherman to become saved and still be a fisherman, right? It's possible. But, but whatever was driving him, whatever was at his heart, whatever idols he was wrapped up in are now supplanted with the glory of Christ. But he can still be a fisherman. And so, you know, that, that could be us. You could go either way on that. But, but I do know that if we lose Jesus' call to be disciples, then our Christian faith is something that we just tack on to the outside. That's Club Jesus. It's a tacked-on thing. It's a, you know, I've got, I'm in the PTA club. I'm in the, I'm in the basketball booster club. I'm in Lions club. And i got church on Sunday club. Just one more thing. Tacked on to the outside of the hose. How many have joined Club Jesus and committed to it like we commit to working out the YMCA? And I'm going to do it for at least a month, see how it goes. Maybe I'll stick with it. I like it. But Jesus commands us to follow Him. Not join His club, but devote our lives to Him as disciples. And in so doing, He's doing nothing less than unraveling and re-raveling our lives around Himself. So maybe we do, do still serve on the PTA. But it's not to build our kingdom now. It's not to build our children's kingdom. It's to be a disciple and make more disciples. That's it. Everything in our life becomes an outlet, not for building our kingdom, but for building His. And if we can't do that where we are, then we quit. If you, that, that's the test, right? If you're in a boat, a job, or dad, or hired servants, or casting nets, that you can't be 
oriented around Christ and building only his kingdom, then you don't need to be there. You need to be somewhere else. 1 Corinthians 10. Everything. Whatever you do. Eat, drink, go to the bathroom, come to church, take a lunch break at work, whatever you do, everything for the glory of God, right? Do everything for the glory of God. I hope you see, I think I think we do, I'm, I'm glad, I feel like we all, there's just a, a massive, sad, but very evident difference between Club Jesus and discipleship, Christianity, and uh, we're going to close in prayer now that God would keep us from one and help us devote ourselves to the other. So, let's pray. Father, Lord, what a privilege it is to be called by King Jesus and to have the privilege of being a follower, a a disciple, a personal disciple of Christ, Lord. What a privilege it was for the twelve disciples and and what a privilege it is for us still today to uh, all authority on heaven and earth be given to you and people have made disciples out of us, Lord, disciples of you and, and disciples of our brothers and sisters in Christ and help us devote ourselves to that same process. Help us to be wrapped up and oriented in being disciples of Christ and making more disciples. Being disciples and making disciples, Lord. Let that be at the core and center of who we are. Replace our idols, Father. Replace the the former things that have consumed us and wrapped us up and, and put yourself in the center of our lives. And give us wisdom about the places in our life that are conflicting with building your kingdom and devoting ourselves to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.